Welcome to the ASRS Oral History of Retina series. The purpose of these interviews is to capture first-hand stories from individuals with unique retinal insights of historical significance. Through these discussions, we will fill in gaps in our understanding of the evolution of the science and practice of retina. And it's our hope that these discussions will serve as the illuminating element in the larger mosaic of the history of retina. I am delighted to have with me today Dr. Larry Yanuzzi, Professor of Ophthalmology at Columbia University Medical School and Founder and Director of the Luester T. Mertz Retinal Research Center. Larry is a prolific researcher with over 600 papers, 177 editorials, paper reviews and book chapters, and 17 book publications, including his critically acclaimed and widely used Retina Atlas. Larry's tremendous international reputation is due to his unique ability to combine his keen observational skills and inquisitive mind with the ability to not only publish his findings at an incredible pace, but to present them in a manner that grabs the attention and interest of his audiences across the globe. Mort Goldberg, former director of the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, once said in a tribute to Larry, when Larry speaks, I avidly listen. When he writes, I carefully read. And when he conducts a fluorescein or imaging conference, I am astounded by his natural skills. I believe that those words reflect the feelings of the entire global retina community. Larry, thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you for such gracious and generous remarks. Kind of you. So I'd like to start at the beginning of your life story. As a child, what was the environment like growing up in your house? I was born in Newark, New Jersey, went to public school. My parents did not have much of a formal education, but they were noted for kindness, honesty, hard work, generosity, large and loving family and friends. In short, I had the good fortune of such a happy childhood. Then it was off to secondary school. Not much to choose from in Newark at the time, but there was one school of music and art that was well known for sending everyone to college. My mother thought it was a good idea. So tell me about the Rhythm Stars, your band in high school. The Rhythm Stars, that's goes way back <laughs> to high school. Well, the saxophonist was my cousin, so that was the first connection. But we had two brilliant other musicians, so we got together and I, I more or less played in the rhythm section. I played the electric keyboard, the accordion, and whatever was available. Lots of noise, <laughs> big sounds. And um, we did get on the Arthur Goffrey uh, amateur hour and the Ted Mack amateur hour, we didn't gain any popularity or any kind of remunerative payment. That was just an experience. But it helps. Every experience like that helps. It got me accustomed to 
performing, speaking, playing in front of an audience, which was helpful later on in my career. And so that was a hobby. It wasn't going to be a career path. Was there Never any a career. I had no talent. I was just <laughs> a fill-in. The others had much more talent. But the headmaster of that school took an interest in me. He was the first person in my career. And there were a few others who took an interest in me that were helpful in my development. What did the headmaster do that was helpful to you in career development? In some way, whatever the standards were, I seemed to test well. So he came and told me that I had to go to Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. At the time, I thought Stanford was in Connecticut. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay. And I applied to all three and got into all three, got a scholarship to all three, thanks to him. So you were accepted to Harvard, Yale, and Stanford for college. Which did you choose? Well, I chose Harvard, but it wasn't my mother's choice. She wanted me to go to a school closer. She thought Stanford was closer in Connecticut. She wanted to be sure that she could do my laundry every week <laughs> and have me come home on the weekend and have a good Italian-American dinner that she would prepare for me. I disappointed her. So after Harvard, you went to medical school? Well, not quite. I went and spent one year with IBM. I had taken some um, computer programming courses, and I thought there'd be a place in medicine for computers. Didn't amount to very much. <laughs> but that was a year. And then I, a late applicant, I applied to um, Boston University, and they were kind enough to take me. I am now a distinguished alumnus of the medical school and of the university as well. I loved being there from the first day I was there. So you're in medical school. Any people in medical school that particularly impacted you in your decision to eventually go into ophthalmology? Well, in medical school, I did very well academically. I graduated second in my class, and it was all based on memory. I recalled what people lectured on, and that was my strategy. But I met um, an African-American ophthalmologist. He was unusual at the time. There were only four African-American ophthalmologists, according to him. And he told me that I should look into ophthalmology. So I went over to the Howe Laboratory and another great person, David Colgan, was there. And part of the experience with David Kogan was to give a lecture at the end of his rotation. My interest was in neuro-ophthalmology, and he asked me to make a presentation, and I chose, of all things, yttrium implantation of the pituitary for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. I didn't even know what proliferative retinopathy was at the time. But evidently, I was able to give a good lecture on a bad subject. And he said to me, Lawrence, you did very well on the lecture. But I think you have a greater inclination or interest in something else, retina. 
take a walk with me across the hall, and he introduced me to Charles Skeppis. And Charles was very cordial and very generous with his time and remarks. And he essentially told me to get lost for a few <laughs> years and come back and see him for fellowship. And that day, fellowship in retina was to be a buckler. You found the tear. You followed a few guidelines, like Harvey Linkoff, who I knew, where I, went, I did my residency. And you re reattached the retina. There was nothing else. Tell me a little bit about your residency. How did you end up at Manhattan Eye and Ear? Interesting. David Kogan thought I ought to stay in Boston. I liked the idea. My wife was from Cambridge. And Mass Eye and Ear was the principal location to train. The only thing, training started every nine to 12 months on a rotation basis, actually every three months. And I needed to, I needed to start right away. So they sent me around to, um, I saw Carl Cuffer and, and he said, Lawrence, uh, what do you think of vitamin A aldehyde? It was not a paying position. <laughs> I said, well, sir, I've never thought about it. <laughs> that was my answer anyway. Anyway, I went to New York and it was loaded with named people, but not in retina. There were enough retinas to draw, to assist on, do a few. Uh, but Don Schaefer, Harvey Linkoff was in the environment, Dave Sadarsky, and I learned my retina from them, but they didn't know medical retina. Medical retina was invented by Don Gass. So I had to get medical retina. I got to know Don well. So, so you did your residency at Manhattan Eye and Ear. Yeah. Right? Um, and then you finish your residency and you did not pursue fellowship. A good friend of mine was Richard Raskin. He was the director of teaching program at Manhattan Idea. He decided to take a year off. He actually went to Europe. He went to France. And there he lived and changed his gender. Everyone knows that. He's now Rene Richards. He asked me if I would replace him as director of training. I said, but I'm looking at a fellowship in Miami. He said, well, you can postpone in a week. <laughs> He's a good friend. <laughs> and so you were going to do a fellowship with Don Gass, correct? Deferred for a year. So you deferred your fellowship for Don Gass for a year, which ended and up it a turned into five years. A permanent deferral, right? Because you never ultimately <laughs> did a fellowship. So you went directly from your residency to being director of the residency program and on staff at Manhattan Ioneers. That well, they thought I was more qualified for that directorship than I was, but I, I, I think I did a decent job. So now I... However, with regard to the fellowship, I was doing fluorescein angiography since I was a second-year resident. It was the only fluorescein being done in New York, okay, just about everywhere else, was just being introduced to it. So as a resident, why were you involved in fluorescein angiography? I started to listen to Don Gass and I began to stalk him. 
as soon as I learned what he was doing, and the only thing he had at the time was a ruby lens for slit lamp biomicroscopy. I don't know how he saw anything, but he saw everything. And of course, he had fluorescein angiography. Uh, anything he did, I stalked him, <laughs> tried to track down every. And what I did was I took what he was doing and with his, I almost took his photographer, who was Johnny Justice, who turned out to be a good friend of mine for many years. And someone at the Eye Bank for special surgery, because I did my residency at Manhattan Eye Near, we had the first Eye Bank in the world. And up there was a research fellow by the name of C.C. Teng. I later trained a member of his family. But he said, we have this old Zeiss black body. Do you, the Zeiss fundus camera was a black body fundus camera, but it had a contacts camera back and you had to twist the dial to advance the film plane. It recycled every three seconds, too slow. But I learned about camera backs and I was able to manage a bayonet mount Nikon camera to advance the film. Not that fast, but fast enough at least one frame per second, but we still needed to sync the light flash. That's where Johnny Justice came in. So Johnny I mean, I got it from his, from Don Gass, who got it from somebody in his garage at Miami. That's how they rigged it up before he got a commercially available system. I got that camera from the iBank. I assembled it. I asked Don Schaefer whether I could do it, whether I could do this fellow Don Gass was doing it in Miami. He asked me whether melanomas fluoresced. And I said, Don, I don't know. <laughs> but I got my first patient had a melanocytoma, actually, at the disc. And I had put the camera back together with the flash device on that old Zeiss camera. And I did the first angiogram. I photographed it myself. I cleaned up the vomitus at the, after he was injected myself. And it didn't fluoresce. So that was the beginning. And then the, I started to do angiography. There was no additional payment or anything like that. When it appeared to be needed, I did it at the Manhattan Iron Air Hospital. They permitted me to do it. Everybody was so kind to me there. You were a resident. Your exposure to fluorescein angiography in the very earliest of days was because you were familiar with Don Gass doing angiography. Is that correct? Right. So you're a resident. We don't have the internet. Just from meetings and papers, you just learn he's doing some of the earliest angiography. And, and you decide as a resident that you want to start doing angiography. There was no attending over you doing angiography? That was it. I mean, well, that's, that's I did a lot have a to do that. I had the blessing of Sadarsky and Schaefer, who had confidence in me. And I would assist them in the OR. But I was always on the back burner. I, uh, surgical, vitreoretinal surgery. Well, it didn't uh, exist then. Right? No, Vitreous was surgery it was just wasn't there. At that point. But those guys were very good bucklers. Yeah. 
So, so, so obviously, as a resident, you became very quickly proficient at, at indirect, direct oh, indirect, and indirect yeah. ophthalmoscopy. All the time. And were you one of the few residents that had any interest in this at all? Was it kind of your... Everybody was given an indirect 30-diopter lens by Sudarsky. Just the way Dr. Norton gave everybody uh, a Nikon lens. It wasn't really the Nikon lens we're familiar with. That happened later. I took a trip to Tokyo for fluorescein angiography to prevent a paper, and I was there when the first Topcon camera was constructed. They gave me lenses just because of my um, knowledge of what was going on, and they put together the Topcon camera. It was not as good as it is today. I guess the point is, is that you, for whatever reason, independently developed this interest in retina, fluorescein angiography, Don Gass was someone that you had a lot of... Without Don Gass's lecturing and publications, I didn't get anywhere. But no one else in New York was doing this. Paul Hankine was in Moorfields at the time. He later came on, and he was my competitive friend. He, Ronnie Carr, another Norker, and I got together and we formed a little group in New York. We showed each other cases. But Don Gass really had a Tuesday morning session where he showed cases. Actually, Don invited me to present cases at one of his Tuesday afternoon meetings. Then I realized it wasn't Norton, but it was all Don Gass when I presented my mystery cases. I invented the word mystery in mystery cases. <laughs> My fund of knowledge did not compare to Don Gass's. But I came back and I started Tuesday morning rounds. I gave up seeing patients. I brought interesting patients back. Ronnie Carr, Kenny Noble um, was working with him. Paul Hankine, Joe Walsh was working with him. We started to get together and we those rounds have been going around for 40 or 45 years. We now have the Unusi rounds, which are all on the internet. And the Unusi rounds are not only world acclaimed, but they're available globally through the internet. So people in any country, in any part of the world can tune in. And I realized how true that was after visiting the Netherlands for the Donders lecture a few weeks ago. But what I wanted to say is that was the origin of the Atlantic coast. And there were three institutions. We in New York, it was really at the Manhattan Pioneer Hospital, but we called it New York Group. I'd like to include everybody. And then there was Philadelphia with Jerry Shields, and there was Wilmer with Stuart Fine. We select three medical retinal leaders at each location. They are the moderators. The rest of the moderators serve as panelists. It's a great opportunity for the audience and, you know, like 1,100 people. It's an incredible educational in. opportunity. Yeah. This year, I decided to publish, and Sandy Brooker is taking care of that, 
the best of the Yanuzzi rounds. So each month, a selection committee, Mark Olberg is one of them, Stuart Fine has come out of retirement, and Jerry Shields, aided by Carol Shields, select the best of six cases. So we've invited the best case of each of those rotations. It's coming out as a publication. That's going to be fantastic. Stand by. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the time after you leave your residency. You become director of the residency at Manhattan Ioneer. You're employed on faculty at Manhattan Ioneer. And you're developing a retina practice now. Even though you didn't do a fellowship, you had enough exposure to retina as a resident. You're very involved at the very earliest stage of fluorescein angiography. Uh, but then there's a transition to private practice. Tell me about that. Well, we needed coverage on the surgical end of it. My first recruit was somebody who was interested in surgery, but also ultrasound. That was Yale Fisher. He was our first fellow. But he needed to be trained, so he, his best buddy is Steve Charles, who was my best buddy. I introduced him. They taught each other how to fly. They claimed to teach one taught the other. I'm not sure who did. In any event, he was a very good vitrectomy uh, specialist, but I also worked closely with Stan Chang. We trained the same fellows together. I took care of medical retina, and Stanley took care of the surgical training. It was a very good, and we trained a lot of people who went into the communities, but also become, became chairman and we started, I don't know how many, countless number of national and international fellows. Uh, we still do. What would you say are some of the highlights of your incredible career? I know there's a lot of them, but if you had to pick one or two, can you? One highlight was polyportal. I saw this interesting vascular. We still don't know what it is exactly. I have my views and... People call it aneurysms. It leaks, it bleeds, rarely it pulsates. That's like a retinal arterial aneurysm, but I think it's different. A long time ago, uh, the, there were two doctors in, uh, back in Boston who wanted me to stay in medicine, Franz Engelfinger and Arnold Rellman, and they wanted me to stay in medicine. And Arnold Relman told me, always look elsewhere in the body and you'll see what's going on in the eye. Good advice. So I look now at polypoidal and I see the glomerulus. I see arteries connecting directly with veins, clumping into a round structure. We don't have the histopathology. You will remember Mark So. He was in Chicago. He has the best but he doesn't have the clinical histopathological correlation we need to prove that. And there are a group of very, very good people in retina, you may be interviewing some of them, who think it's aneurysmal. I agreed with him at one point, but I don't really think it's aneurysmal. I think it's more like glomerulus. Anyway, that'll surface in the future. I hope I'm around when it does. The other thing is retinal angiomatous proliferation, or RAP. That was first observed by Mary Hartnett next to a pigment epithelial detachment. 
She didn't know what it was. I reviewed her paper. I told her, and she'll tell you the same thing, that I thought it was neovascularization that was clumping up together. And I called it retinal angiomatous proliferation to honor her, really, because she said anomalous, because it went down to the pigment epithelium, but not beyond. But the French said, but it, there's an anastomosis there. And I said, you're correct. There is an anastomosis, not always, but in the beginning there isn't. And uh, so I think that retinal angiomatous proliferation is from the retina. I didn't get Don Gass to believe in it until a pet peeve of him, of his, and that was macular telangiectasia type 2, where that happens. There's proliferation in the retina from the deep capillary plexus or even from, but not pre-retinal. And when I pointed that out to him just before he died, he said, well, you know, why can't it happen in the retina in AMD? And I said, well, it does, Don. He said, well, okay, I accept it now. <laughs> <laughs> You've published a crazy number of papers. Is there one, the first one, the earliest one, that made you feel like, I have really made a major contribution? Obviously, lots of contributions. Some are bigger, some are less consequential. Do you remember the first one you went, wow, well, this, this is important stuff? Something comes to mind. You haven't asked me that before. And it's no longer a useful paper. But when I was a, a resident instructor, first year out, I published something called Classification for Abnormal Fundus Fluorescence. It was how to read a fluorescein hyper or hypofluorescence. I met Howie Schatz because of it. He saw it, contacted me and said, Ed Mormony, remember him? Head of Wilmer, wants me to give a lecture. Can I give your lecture at that and acknowledge it? And I said, sure. I'll give you the slides. He said, I can get slides on my own. He was very uh, sufficient when it came to imaging, <laughs> as he is today. Uh, and then lots of people read that little paper, and we made a, a, a textbook out of it. Howie Schatz and, and, and I and two other guys. Um, I think that had impact. And it was not published in an impact journal, but it got around. You've had an amazingly successful and lengthy career. You're still going to work every day. Any end in sight for you in terms of working? No end in sight. Just like tennis, I have a frozen shoulder. My knees are shot. I've been born with congenital scoliosis, but I'm going to still be out there hit them as long as I can. The same thing with ophthalmology. As long as I am doing my very best for patients, still have something to teach, and the possibility of a discovery, I'm getting up every morning and going to work. And it's not work for me, it's play. You're an inspiration for ophthalmologists, not just retina specialists. I hope it lasts. Thanks for chatting with me today.